and the rest of you. Let's go ahead and continue in our study. We are in, like I said, Ephesians chapter 4. Those of you who are visiting for the first time, we started Ephesians back in September, started at verse 1, then going through pretty much verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And now we're really towards the end of Ephesians chapter 4, about to kick in chapter 5, even starting next week. But just to bring you up to speed, for the first three and a half, actually for the first four chapters, uh, almost four and a half chapters, in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been emphasizing to the Christian their position in Christ, all these great things and awesome things, unbelievable, amazingly gracious things that God has done for the believer, actually for sinners, through the person of Jesus Christ by sending him into the world as the God-man so that he might live a perfect life as the God-man, willingly be crucified on a cross and be punished for the sins of the world. And then he rose again from the dead, conquering death and sin, and then ascended into heaven. And anybody that puts their faith and personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and asks him to come into their life to be their Savior and Lord and to be forgiven, Jesus will answer that prayer. And when that happens, you become a Christian instantaneously upon true belief and true understanding of the gospel. And also what happens in that moment of time is the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of you as a Christian. And that's just the beginning of all these glorious blessings that every Christian is the beneficiary of in this life. And that's what Ephesians 1 through 4 is all about. It's about our position in Christ. The blessings of knowing Jesus Christ personally. Then Paul makes a major turn. There's a major transition in his thought, even his style of writing, and even the verbiage he uses in the middle of chapter 4 of Ephesians. And you need to know that because we've taken the turn now. And so now there's a, a new tone and a new style to his writing, and you're going to pick up on it as we go. So he transitions from your position in Christ to now, if you're a Christian, it is now the emphasis is on your practice in Christ. Your position, now, it's, now that you know that you're a Christian, now that you understand what it means to be a Christian, now that you know what God expects of you, then you know what? You need to live like it. You need to be consistent in your life. So you go from position to practice. You go from doctrine to to duty. That's what he's talking about. The rest of the book of Ephesians is going to be about our duty. First part of Ephesians, indicatives, they're called. Just statements of reality. Now he's changing to imperatives. What are those? Those are commands. Starting in the middle of chapter 4 of Ephesians. The reason that is important is because you need to know it. From here on out, the Apostle Paul is going to have his finger pretty much in our face, if you will. And he's going to be telling us what to do and what not to do as a Christian. That's an imperative. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. So this is prescriptive or proscriptive, it's called. Do this. Don't do that. I'm saying all this just so you know the context of the book. And I'm also saying this by word of warning. Because if you're a person that doesn't like to be told what to do, first of all, you don't have to raise your hand. But if you're a person that doesn't like to be told what to do, you you may not like a lot of what's in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 because that's all Paul is doing. Do this, don't do that, Christian. Do this, don't do that. That's imperatives. So we've got over 40 of them in the rest of this book. So you might get a little irritated. Hopefully not at me, but at the scriptures and the truth of God's word as Paul's talking as an authoritative apostle and a spokesperson for the Holy Spirit of what we are supposed to be doing as Christians and what we are supposed to refrain from doing as Christians as we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's just a fair warning. So as I preach through the rest of Ephesians and if... Your feelings are hurt, that's probably a good thing. Because that means that maybe Paul or the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to work on your conscience and challenge your thinking. That's what the Scripture's for, by the way, just by way of reminder. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, God gave us the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired. The Bible is inspired for the purpose of teaching, reproof, Correction. All those last two. Reproof and correction. Those are not nice words. Reprove and correct means to uh, straighten us out, to correct us, to expose what's wrong. You know, and sometimes that hurts our feelings, doesn't it? So I know that throughout the rest of this book, some people's feelings are going to be hurt. Some people are going to be challenged. Some people are going to hear things they don't like. And you know what? It's true with me, too. I was reading and studying things this week that rebuked me, that challenged me, that embarrassed me, that humbled me, that stepped on my toes, that hurt my feelings. And I felt kind of yucky at times. And that's what the Word of God does. It is living and active. The Word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the very soul of a human being, piercing our heart, piercing our mind, judging even our thoughts 
and our motives. Judging the intentions of the heart. That happened to me as I was studying this week. I was convicted by the truth of the Word of God that I was studying. And I felt, man, I, wow, how am I going to preach this? Because I don't perfectly exemplify what this passage is demanding. And then I read James and was encouraged where he told me, nobody's perfect. I said, praise the Lord. So what is this that Paul rebuked me of this week that hopefully he might rebuke or at least challenge you or maybe even encourage you? Well, that was with regard to the use of your mouth as a Christian, your words. So let's go ahead and look at it. By the way, the title of the sermon today, I just put, Watch Your Mouth! Exclamation point. That's what it's all about. Watch your mouth, Christian! Did your mother ever say that to you? Uh, I think my mother said that to me. But she had ten kids to say that to, so I don't know if I ever... And I was the youngest, so maybe I got skipped. But anyway... Watch your mouth, because that's what Paul's trying to tell us. Follow along with me as I read about how we're supposed to guard our mouth and have a Christian mouth in terms of our speech. Starting at verse 29, uh, Paul says, Christian, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's pretty heavy duty. It's a mouthful Paul has given us here regarding our mouth and how we should honor God with our speech. And so from these three verses, I just came up with two main principles I want us to be challenged with and go away with and apply to our life. Two principles are... In your handout there, if you have a handout, number one is that Christians should be characterized by constructive speech. That's the first two verses. Christians should be characterized by constructive speech. And then in verse 31, number two, Paul says Christians need to abandon destructive speech. So it's all about constructive speech and destructive speech. Let's go ahead and look at it. And first, let's look at how Paul tells the Christian that we need to be characterized by constructive speech. But before we do that, I do want to read that passage from James 3 that was so appropriate. Um, You can follow along if you want to. Otherwise, you can just listen to these first four passages that I want to read before I get to Ephesians. These are just passages on the mouth, on our tongue, on our words. Just an overview of what the Bible has to say. The first one is in James chapter 3, um, where it talks about the mouth and using our words, and in verse 3 he says, now if we put the bits, well, let me start at verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. That's encouraging, isn't it? Every Christian stumbles, every Christian sins, and every Christian sins in multitudes of ways. We're all sinners. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble or sin in what he says, he is a perfect man. So he's talking about the tongue. We're all going to sin with respect to our tongue as humans. There is nobody who can control their tongue perfectly all of the time. Otherwise, he'd be a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also. So he's talking about how little things control big things. And a little tongue can control a whole human being at times. Skip down to verse 5. So also the tongue, it's a small part of the human body, isn't it? And yet it boasts of great things. It can do a lot of damage. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire as the tongue and evil words. Verse 6. And the tongue is a fire when it's sinful, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members of our body as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed or brought under control and has been tamed by the human race, but no human can perfectly tame the tongue. It's an out-of-control beast of an animal. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Wow, I read that and I think, man, how in the world am I going to perfectly control my tongue and my speech all the time? I can't. It's humanly impossible. Well, humanly impossible, true, but God has given the Christian help to control their speech. Our dependence is upon God in the area of how we conduct our verbal life, how we use our tongue. Two passages from Jesus regarding our words and how important they are. One's from Matthew 12, the other's from Matthew 15. Listen to this, what Jesus said about our words. Matthew 12, uh, verse 35. says, The good man or the good person 
out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, I say to you that every careless word that people speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Do you know that we are accountable before the Lord God and Jesus Christ for every word that comes out of our mouth? Whether you meant it or not. How many times do you hear people say, well, I didn't mean it. Too bad. We're, we're accountable for it anyway. Well, I was just kidding. Well, we're accountable for it anyway. That's what Jesus said. Every word. This is sobering. This is scary. This is Jesus the Lord talking. By the way, he's the judge at the end of, the, of time, so he would know. We'll be judged for every careless word. Verse 37, he says, For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Wow. It's frightening. He was rebuking Pharisees at the time. Two chapters over. Uh, Jesus again talks about our words. Why do we say what we say? Well, here he tells us why we say what we say. Verse 18, The things that proceed out of the mouth... Why do we say what we say? What's going to tell us? The things that proceed out of them, those are words. They come from the heart. That's the key. Our words come from the heart. Words are simply just a barometer or a manifestation of a greater reality. And that reality is what is going on in our hearts and in our minds. That's what words indicate. That's what Jesus said. So if you're, chi- if you're a parent and your child has a problem with his mouth or his words, I wouldn't be as concerned about his words as I would about his heart. That's what Jesus said. Things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. What kind of things, Jesus? Evil thoughts, verse 19. The end of verse 19, slander. It comes from the heart. It issues from the heart. So really what we're, we're dealing with not just words today. We are actually dealing with the condition of the heart. You know what? I have a heart condition. How about you? The Bible says there's two of us. Two of us aren't lying. But anyway, uh, we have a heart condition because that's what Jesus said. And then Paul said in Corinthians, Christian, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Be willing to do some self-diagnosis, self-examination, and particularly with respect to your heart condition as evidenced by the words that you use. Are they constructive or are they destructive? That'll be a good indicator of what's going on in your heart and your relationship with God. That's what Paul tells us. Well, there's only one way you can do it. Well, but James said it's impossible to control the tongue. Yeah, that's true. That's on a human level. But once you become a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, literally, Christian. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, who is your teacher, your helper, your comforter, And also the one who can help you control your words. And even can help you control your thoughts. That's what the Bible says in Galatians 5. It says every Christian has the ability to either walk in obedience to the Spirit or disobedience to the Spirit. Which is you either are walking in the flesh, which means you are resisting the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Or you are walking in the Spirit, meaning you are walking in obedience to the Spirit of God who lives in you. And he says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, if you're walking in obedience to the Spirit of God who lives in you, being obedient to his word, then you can be successful with respect to your tongue and your words, Christian, in spite of what James chapter 3 says. That's glorious. Because if you're walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of you can produce the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, as opposed to mean words, gentleness, as opposed to wrathful words, goodness, self-control. Now, out of those fruits of the Spirit, which one do we need to help with the most respect to our words? Probably, maybe self-control. I know I do. I need supernatural, Holy Spirit, self-control of my tongue and my mouth. And the promise to the Christian is, That's what I've given you the Holy Spirit for, Christian. You can control, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, your words. So that we're constructive and not destructive. Well, let's go back to Ephesians now, just in light of that introduction. Knowing that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to obey what this passage commands. And we have the resident ability to do it. And Paul says, Christians, you should be characterized by constructive speech. And I put there A, B, and C. Three truths that undergird this point. First thing is, Christians, you should have no foul language among you. No foul language. Believe it or not, I mean, I have been in, I can remember specifically, 
conversations or debates I have been in with Christians talking to them about whether it is okay for Christians to use cuss words or not. Really. And these were real Christians. And I was on the side where it said it wasn't cool to use cuss words, by the way. And uh, people in particular that I could think of were on the other side of the debate saying, well, no, it's, it's okay. Well, why is it okay? Well, I don't see a passage anywhere in the Bible where it says you can't use cuss words. They're just kind of colloquialisms that are made up and they're just kind of sound. They don't really have any inherent meaning, so I don't see what's wrong with it. I think, well, actually, so you're talking about cuss words, which are foul words, foul language. Well, right here, Paul says explicitly, Christian, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That's the first point, no foul language. The word for unwholesome means foul. That's what it means. As a matter of fact, it's used a few times in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, 48, it refers to foul, stinky, rotting fish or rancid fish. It was rancid in its appearance, and it was rancid in its stench. It was overwhelming. It stunk. The whole point is it was foul. That's the word being used here. It's metaphorical. It's picturesque. And God is telling us through the Apostle Paul, Christian, there should be no unwholesome word among you. No foul language. No foul language. Also, the the implication here is there should be nothing spoken that undermines other people. You should never speak anything that is inappropriate. But he's emphasizing no foul language, no dirty language, no putrid, unprofitable language among a Christian. Or sometimes this word was used for corrupt. No corrupt terminology. I don't care what TV programs you like and watch or movies you like and watch or music you listen to and like and listen to that has corrupt, foul, unwholesome words in it. We're not supposed to be like that as Christians. This is a command. Again, here's the Apostle Paul. No unwholesome language in the Christian community or in your Christian life. Well, that's hard, Paul. Yeah, it is hard. Humanly speaking, it's very hard. I know this is, I grew up in a home that was not instructed according to the Bible. I did not have a Christian worldview. I didn't start studying the Bible until I was in college. And so cuss words were very frequent in the, not just in my home, in the entire neighborhood and network of people I knew growing up, just in an unsaved secular community for the most part. And cuss words, they were the norm. That's how we spoke. We could use one cuss word for seven different parts of speech. We were very creative with it. It's just normal. If you go to a public high school or middle school, you're probably going to have a proliferation of foul language all over the place. I was a Christian school teacher and heard cuss words at the Christian school. I know that's a shock for some of you. That's just natural to the sinful human heart, is foul, sinful language. That's how I grew up. That's how my mentors spoke. That's how my friends spoke. That's how people at school spoke. That's how my neighborhood spoke. That's the television shows that I watched. So it was a part of my vocabulary. It was second nature. But I also grew up somewhat religious in that I grew up in a Roman Catholic uh, influence. So there were some morals there that were kind of pressing down upon my conscience that actually at times made me feel guilty for my foul mouth. And I remember one time when I was in seventh grade, and I was at a Christian school and a buddy of mine, and we were both convicted about our language and how we cussed all the time. And so we made a vow, a covenant to one another. We were going to hold each other accountable to not cuss anymore. And then we also put a rubber band around our wrist. And every time uh, we heard the other guy say a foul word, we had the privilege of snapping the rubber band on his wrist. Now, this was painful. This went on for two weeks. This was not accomplishing anything, uh, and we were not going to give up our cussing. And this got very frustrating, so we abandoned the covenant, got rid of the rubber bands, and just kept on cussing. That was in seventh grade. And it wasn't until I was in college where I heard the gospel, gave my life to Christ. Jesus came into my life, sent the Holy Spirit in my life. And after 30 days after being a Christian, I woke up one day and realized, it just kind of dawned on me, you know, I haven't said a cuss word in 30 days. This is unbelievable. What happened 30 days ago? And then I realized that's when Christ came into my life and he changed me on the inside out. And so that was one of the greatest signs to me in testimonials that Jesus was real and that he had really invaded my life. And when he redeemed my heart, he also redeemed my mouth. Have I been perfect ever since then? No. Because, you know, old habits are hard to break sometimes, aren't they? And we're all susceptible to sin. But that was one of the clearest examples to me that God had moved in my life and saved me. All that just to say, as a seventh grader who didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, it was futile. I could not change my inside. Once I got saved, I had the Holy Spirit of God. He was the only one who could help me overcome sin. So Christian, no foul language. 
He goes on to balance this. Paul says, no foul language, let her be there. But rather than foul language or undermining language, use only edifying language. That's the second point. He goes on and he says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And literally the terminology is, uh, let no unwholesome word escape from your mouth. Oops, that one got out. But rather, what's the contrast? But only such a word as is good for edification. I want to emphasize that word, edification. This is a great word, edification. Oikadameo. Me and my three roommates, uh, my three, three roommates and I, sorry, in college, we were all Bible majors, all going to seminary, so we were all taking Greek, and we were all into Greek words, and we adopted this word in our apartment, oikadameo, two words, oikos, house, house, dameo, to build, to build a house, to construct a house, to build something up, to build up an edifice that is useful, that is practical, that is good. That's the word he uses here, it's a compound word, oikadameo. Speak words that, are, that build up, that edify, that are useful, that benefit others. Those are the kind of words we should use, not foul words. So the opposite of edifying words is what? Destructive words, words that tear down, words that uh, undermine, words that demean, words that are destructive, words that are critical or hypercritical. So every time we said something that was not edifying to a fellow roommate, even if we were kidding, we'd say, oh, oikadameo, violation, violation. You spoke an unedifying word to me. I know you're sarcastic and you were just kidding, but it was a violation of this verse. So we held each other accountable on that, to speak only edifying words. And Paul means it. This is a command. This is not an option. Speak only edifying words. As opposed to what the world would have us do, they think we should be saying put-downs, Right? Cut-downs, put-downs, those are funny, right? That's what sitcoms are all about, right? Raymond and MASH and all those other classics, uh, it's all about put-downs and cut-downs. And actually, it's totally antithetical and unbiblical. So we've got to be very careful and guard against that in our culture because it's just the thing to do. To be funny, to be acceptable, to be persuasive, to have people like you, you've got to be sarcastic, you've got to be cynical, you've got to be putting people down and doing it in a funny way. And the scripture says, no, don't do that. Only edifying words, only words that build up. This was a tremendous struggle and challenge for me because I was known for my quick wit and my biting tongue and my um, just rampant, natural cynicism and sarcasm. And I was a funny dude. So uh, I took pride in this, particularly at the beginning of my freshman year in college, of how cynical, sarcastic I was, and I could make people laugh by ripping somebody else. Then I got saved and was totally convicted. You know what? That was sinful and wrong. I can't do that anymore. So Christian, if you want to be funny by being sarcastic, by uh, some, making somebody the butt of your joke, then make yourself the butt of your joke. Make fun of yourself. Criticize yourself. Don't do it to other people because it is totally contrary to what Scripture says. Don't say unwholesome words, but rather speak only words that are edifying, that build up, that encourage, that are constructive, that are beneficial. This is a tremendous challenge for us. Uh, for all of us. Like I said, even when we think we're, well, I was just kidding. That's not an excuse. So this is why I was challenged as I was studying this this week, being convicted. God, you need to help me through the Holy Spirit to guard and gauge my mouth and my words and what I'm exposed to. This is tough. So be constructive with your speech. No foul language. Use edifying language. Let her see. Use language that is gracious. He goes on. Only use words that are good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, letter C on your hand out there, it says that. In the Greek text, it's in order that, for the purpose of. For the purpose of. Did you know that God expects Christians to be purposeful in the, when they talk? We're supposed to be deliberate, not just the purpose-driven church. We need to have a purpose-driven mouth, is what he's saying, Literally. Well, what is the purpose of our words? What is the purpose of our speech when we talk to other people? Well, the purpose is that you may give grace to those who hear. Give grace, that you may bless those who hear. What is your conversation like, for the most part, when people are listening to you? Are you a gracious person? Or are you hypercritical and cynical and sarcastic and actually you kind of hurt people's feelings unnecessarily? Paul says our, purpose, our speech needs to be deliberate for the purpose of gracing those who hear. Now, by the way, you can be constructively critical and still be a gracious person, right? We want to tell the truth. Speak the truth in love is all it means. Being a gracious talker 
when you're around people. Listen to the way Paul says it in Colossians 4, 6. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. Talk about gracious speech. He says this, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. Just the right amount of salt. What does salt do? It brings taste to something, doesn't it? Bring taste to your conversation. Bring efficacy to your conversation. Bring something valuable to your conversation. Have an impact in a good way on somebody in your conversation. Season your conversation and your words with salt in order that you may know how you should respond to each person as you're talking to them. So we have to be calculated in our speech. That's why James says, be slow to speech because we have to be deliberate and calculated in our speech, right? So you think before you speak. That's why you have to be slow before you speak. And when we do speak deliberately, we are speaking with the purpose of being gracious regardless of whatever needs to be said. And a rebuke even can be gracious. The truth can be gracious. A blessing needs to be gracious. So that is the purpose when we speak. That is constructive speech. No foul language. Edifying language. Language with a purpose that is gracious towards those who hear you. And then he goes on at the end of the verse. Listen to what he says. Actually, the next verse. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such words that are good. By the way, the word good there, in the middle of verse 29, agathos, where we get the name Agatha. It's a beautiful name. It means good, really morally pure. So much for cuss words and gutter talk. Speak only words that are morally pure. Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Uh, oh, timely words. It's not, a, it's not even just what you say sometimes. It's when you say it, right? The timing of your word is very important. That takes tact. That takes prayer. That's being conscientious. That's being deliberate. According to the need of the moment. Because when somebody is downcast, maybe they went through a tragedy in their life, the last thing in the world they need is some sarcastic, offhanded, superficial comment, right? They need encouragement to minister to the soul according to the need of the moment. You never know what a person is going through, what's going on in their mind, what suffering they have in their life. That's why we need to be careful with our words. In order that it may give grace to those who hear, verse 30, and he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is a continuation of verse 29. This all goes together. What Paul's saying is if you use unwholesome words, and you use words that are not edifying, And if you use words that cut people down, and you use words that hurt people's feelings needlessly, and if you use words that are sarcastic and cynical in the wrong way, and you use foul language that is inappropriate, you're going to affect people, you're going to hurt people. Not only that, you're going to grieve the Spirit of God. Do not with your mouth and your wicked words grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's saying. Grieve. That's an emotional term. You know, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's invisible. He's God, he's eternal, but he is a person. And as a person, the Holy Spirit has emotions. He's an emotional being. We were made in God's image, and we have emotions because we were made in God's image because God is an emotional being. And here's one of the emotions that the Holy Spirit has. He has grief, sorrow, sadness. When does the Holy Spirit get grieved, sorrowful, sad? Well, when Christians in particular use inappropriate language, especially when they're ripping on other people in the wrong way. That grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit who is in heaven and everywhere when you do that. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God that might be in the Christian that you're ripping on. And most of all, it grieves the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, Christian. So that kind of talk stifles and stymies and truncates our own Christian growth and our own Christian sanctification. He is grieved. Don't do that, Paul says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Christian. By the way, where is it typically the hardest to control your mouth? Where do you mess up most of the time? Well, I've heard people say, and I know this is true of me, it's at home, isn't it? It's around the people you are most familiar with. And unfortunately, it is probably at the deepest level in marriages, in a lot of marriages, not all marriages, but in many marriages. I've done enough marriage counseling over the years to know this is true. I've been married long enough to know this is true. So all the more, when God has brought you together as husband and wife to make you one flesh, especially if you're both believers, and you're supposed to be united in everything, and then you start attacking one another with your words, with unedifying words and foul words, you are grieving the Holy Spirit and the very person that you're supposed to be one flesh with. Talk about undermining the work God's trying to do in your life, Christian. That is a tremendous challenge for all of us. 
And if you have kids, this is a challenge, right? Both for you controlling your mouth with your children and also teaching your children to control their mouths. Tremendous challenge. But this is very practical. We need to talk about this. This is a reality we have to confront every single day. Having godly speech in our own life, in our families, in our marriages, and in all of our relationships. So use edifying, constructive language so that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in your life. But use constructive speech, Christian. It goes on. Let's look at point number two. Christians need to abandon destructive speech. Now he's going to get very specific. He talked about the positive side of the kind of language we need to use, and that is words that build up, words that are edifying, words that are encouraging. By the way, it'd be good to do a little diagnostic test of yourself, and I will do it with myself by asking a couple of key questions. Do you typically spew more critical words when you talk to people? Or are you known more by constructive words when you talk to people? Or, even more challenging, do you use more critical words about people behind their back? Or do you use more edifying, constructive words about people behind their back? That's just a good, you know, stop, pause, evaluate, check our hearts, God help me, help me assess, have my spouse assess and help me, have other Christians help me, give me the balance, give me the perspective. And if we have a tendency to be more hypercritical, illegitimately, or undermining, or cynical, or sarcastic, we need to repent of that sin. That is a sin, we need to repent of it. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but that's just a good time to pause. But go on to number two. Christians, uh, we need to abandon destructive speech. Uh, And that's verse 31. Look at the list of very specific words that he gives regarding destructive speech that can be so harmful. He, and, by, and it's all in the context of a command, okay? Do this, do that, don't do this. Well, what, don't do what, Paul? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Every single one of those words is specifically dealing with our language or is directly related to our language and our speech. And they're very enlightening to look at them. And I'm so glad that Paul gave all this. He got very specific. He didn't just say, stop using bad language or stop using hurtful language or stop using uh, negative language. He got specific. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. The reason I'm glad he did that is because there's something there for everybody, regardless of your personality. Some of you tend to be more verbal than others. Some of you aren't, don't talk at all or whatever. And you would think maybe by the end of this conversation, that, oh, I got through scot-free because none of this applies to me because you're not a verbal person. Or maybe you're not a loud person. Like me, a loud guy talks loud. Oh, you talk too loud. I hear that. No, there's something here for everybody, whether you're passive or aggressive, whether you're loud or quiet, regardless of your personality or your temperament, regardless of your gender. So Paul confronts every single one of us or every susceptibility of just being a human. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at these things that we need to just put away. By the way, uh, the command is that we put these things away. Verse 31, where it says put them away, that means put them away once and for all. Cease and desist. Stop. There is no excuse. This is inexcusable in the Christian life and in the church. This kind of language. There is no excuse. Get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Again, he's got that finger wagging in our face. That's the implication of this command. Get rid of your foul speech. Here are the specifics Paul gives us. First of all, he says, let all bitterness be put away from you. By the way, it says, it should say, no resentful words. Not mo resentful words, because that's just the opposite. It's no resentful words, okay? Mo is the original, not Greek, but, well, anyway. Um, So just fix that. No resentful words. And the word Paul uses here is bitterness. It's only used four times in the New Testament, but it's always very specific, and it refers to something that is bitter to the taste, and it always, 100% of the time, refers primarily to a resentful attitude. So it's talking about the attitude, right? So Paul's addressing where it all starts. It starts, our bad words start with a bad heart. Our bad words start with a bad attitude. Our bad words start with bad thoughts, don't they? That's what Jesus said. Out of the heart issue forth bad words. That's what Paul's saying here. Put away the bitter attitude. The resentful attitude. You know what a resentful attitude is? It's an unforgiving attitude. That's why Paul said earlier, if you uh, have a grievance or uh, you're angry at somebody, then you better, put, you better be forgiving. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you hold on to sin, uh, or if you, hold, if you don't have forgiveness and you hold on to a grievance you have against somebody, and let that fester, that's going to turn into bitterness over time. 
And you know what's going to happen? It's going to grow and become like cancer, and it will turn into resentment. Once it reaches the point of turning into resentment, it's probably going to manifest itself with hateful, mean, sinful speech, because that's what he's going to get to. It'll manifest itself some way, probably in anger, with angry words. So we've got to start there. How do we control these things? We've got to start with the attitude. We've got to put away resentment. We've got to be a forgiving person. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He defines love. Love is all these things. Love doesn't do this. Love does not keep a record of wrongs made against you. Which means love forgives. Put it away. Forget the sin. Question, Christian. Is there anybody in your life right now that you have resentment towards? Think about it. If you have resentment towards somebody, ooh, that's not good. I'm glad you're recognizing it in your own mind, but if you do have resentment against a particular person, that is not good. Because that means there's bitterness swelling up. Well, what if I have resentment against a particular person? Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have got to deal with it and deal with it immediately. You go to that person, you try to do whatever you can to make it right. Paul said in Romans, insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Confess that sin to God, like David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. God, you've got to confess the very specific sin. God, forgive me of my hardness of heart towards this person. Forgive me of my unforgiveness. Soften my heart. Create peace in my heart. Create peace in our relationship, if possible. And you've got to give the resentment over to God. Otherwise, it'll fester and it'll manifest itself and it will rob you of your joy in the Christian life. So this is the heart, this is the attitude. We have got to constantly examine our heart and our attitude of feelings we have towards other people. So he goes on. He goes beyond the attitude now. He says, let all bitterness, that's resentment, and wrath be put away. By the way, he uses the word wrath and anger. Many times those are synonyms in the New Testament. So they parallel. Sometimes they overlap. But there are many times where they're different in terms of their nuance or their meaning. And here... They definitely have a different nuance because Paul puts them side by side and then separates them with the word and or the conjunction. These are two kinds of sinful talk or attitudes. Wrath and anger. Let's look at the first one. I put there letter B, no outbursts of rage. That's how I interpreted the word wrath there. Let all wrath be put away from you. What is the word for wrath here or rage? The Greek word is thumos. And it means literally in the Hebrew from which it came, to snort. That's what it means. Like a bull, a ravenous, raging bull that wants to kill somebody. That's what it came, came from, very picturesque. Don't snort. Okay, guys? What does it mean? Well, it's metaphorical. It's talking about emotional burning rage, outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger. This is aggressive anger. You know how some people are called passive-aggressive? This is the aggressive person, not a passive-aggressive. The aggressive person. This emotional burning rage manifest through outbursts of uncontrollable anger. Now, by the way, this word is used in the New Testament of people, and usually it's they're in sin when they're manifesting this kind of wrath. Uh, it's re- used of Satan, and it's used of God, too, all over the Bible. But you know what? God has holy wrath, doesn't he? God never sins when he's angry, ever. He always does the right thing when he's angry. We, as sinful humans, we are not like God. That's why Paul said, be angry, but don't sin, because it's our tendency to sin in our anger because of a lack of self-control. So Paul's saying, put away the sinful wrath in your life. Put away the sinful anger in your life. If if you're prone to outbursts of anger, Christian, stop. Put it away. Stop. Cease and desist. Confess it to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Ask somebody in your family to hold you accountable. Ask another Christian to pray for you and help you. We need to grow in this area. That's what Paul's saying. Put it away from you, this kind of wrath. And then similarly related to that, he says, um, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. This word, which I said is similar to wrath, sometimes translated as anger, just as thumos is. This word here, uh, where I said, no deep-seated stewing anger. The Greek word is orge. Used over 30 times in the New Testament, almost every single time it refers to God's orge, God's wrath. So it's a good and holy wrath. But when it is not a good wrath, it's usually in reference to humans four or five times. So again, we get angry, and because we're sinners and a lack of self-control, we can't control our anger the right way many times. So Paul says, 
Put this illegitimate, sinful, unrighteous anger away and out of your life. This wrath and anger. Well, how is this different from the previous word for wrath? Well, some distinctives are, again, uh, this is anger or hostility that kind of builds over time and grows subtly and steadily until all of a sudden it has to issue forth some way. And it usually issues forth in an argument or with angry words for the purpose of retaliation and revenge. That's kind of a characteristic of this word. Seeking retaliation and revenge. And it could be somebody who deserves uh, retaliation or somebody who deserves judgment, but you know what? It's not our place to give judgment and vengeance. And that's why in the Bible, in Hebrews, Paul told Christians, don't get angry with people. Don't retaliate with people, evil for evil, but rather leave room for the wrath of God. And then he quotes the Lord, and the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God is going to settle all accounts the right way. So you don't need to be meditating and be angry about somebody and what they did and how they wronged you over days and weeks and months and years. You don't need to do that. You give it over to the Lord. And if they are wrong, you know what? They're going to have to be confronted by the Lord. That's why he said, Give room for the wrath of God. Let me take care of it. I am the judge. Jesus is the judge. He will settle all accounts. And you know what? He will do it perfectly, judiciously, equitably, because he's the judge. So as a result, we need to render all judgment over to God and get rid of the wrath and anger that is deep-seated in our hearts towards people who we feel like have wronged us. And by the way, another reason we need to give our anger over to the Lord, this deep-seated, growing hostility towards people, and give it over to the Lord regarding people who have hurt us in our life is because we have to allow God, through His Holy Spirit and the Word, to work on other people's hearts, don't we? We have to allow people to change, don't we? That's how I got saved. God was patient with me. We need to be patient with others as well. So God can work on somebody's hardened, wicked heart over time and totally transform and change them for the good. Then all that wrath and anger you had could be totally forgiven and dealt with. Boom. Because God changed their life. He changed their soul. So we need to let God be the judge and do all the retaliating and the vengeance as is appropriate and let him be angry. And we'll put away our sinful anger. That's what Paul's saying. So put away all that bitterness, all the wrath, all the anger. And then look at the next word. Letter D. Put away all unbridled shouting. Let all clamor be put away from you. Literally, the word, every time it's used. This is talking about shouting and screaming. Have you ever talked to somebody and they're just so angry, they're just shouting and screaming at you, and you can't even hear what they're saying because it's hurting your ear? Ow. It's embarrassing. Shouting and screaming. There is no place in the Christian life for this, shouting and screaming. It's called clamor. It's, it's just dissonance. It's noise. It's obnoxious. It is loud. It doesn't make sense. Just stop it. It's out of control totally lacks control of the Holy Spirit who gives the fruit of self-control. Gentleness is the very antithesis of this. Screaming and yelling. So Christian put it away. Then he goes on, letter E. Another kind of illegitimate speech that we use. Letter E, no personal maligning. Little bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you. This is a very specific word. It means to malign somebody's character, to make a personal attack on somebody's character, to defame them with the intent to hurt them. I think of Lamentations chapter 3 that says, in light of my sin, God, who am I to complain about anything? That needs to be the attitude of the Christian. In light of my sin, who am I to think that I could slander anybody or malign anybody or point out their a terrible sin. And James said, we all stumble in many ways. We all sin in many ways. We need to be humbled by that truth. If we were humbled by that truth frequently enough, then maybe we won't engage in slander, personally maligning somebody in an argument. And it's usually strategic in an argument. This, this can happen in the home. This can happen in a marriage. When it reaches a, a frenzied peak of anger, and then now we start attacking very specifically, like with a sword. Okay, now I'm going to get him where he really hurts. And just start ripping away on his character, on her character, defaming them. By the way, the Greek word for this is blasphemy. That's the Greek word. To blaspheme there, to malign their character. That's why we don't blaspheme God. We don't malign God's character. So we should not be 
uh, resorting to maligning a person's character. And this is either in their face or behind their back. If you do it behind their back, what is that called? That's called gossip. If you slander somebody to their face, that's just sinfully wrong. If you do it behind their back, that's gossip. And you know what? It's also cowardly when we gossip and malign somebody behind their back. Well, Paul goes on and he concludes this with letter F here. It says, this kind of speech is wicked. He, says, he mentions these things very specifically. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. And then the rest of the verse is actually a summary phrase. Put away all these things along with all malice. And his point is, the word malice there, it's just the normal word for what, that which is bad, what is evil, what is wicked. And he's saying, all of these things are just evil and wicked. They are sinful. Every one of them. And you know what? They're equally sinful. Whether you have a problem with your temper and an outrage of anger, that is just as sinful as quietly, secretly slandering somebody behind their back. They're both equally sinful. All unrighteousness is sin. That's what John says in this epistle. And you know what? These vicious, wicked words, these are just as sinful and wrong and heinous to God's Spirit as our other acts of sin. Some people think, well... I'm not as bad as that sinner because I'm not a thief and I don't steal. Or I haven't committed murder. Or I haven't done some act of sin. I don't lie all the time. I haven't hit anybody. I haven't stolen anybody's property. But at the same time, maybe they have a sinful mouth. You know what Paul says? All these things, these are vile, these are wicked, these are just as bad. They're an offense to God. They need God's forgiveness. So that's a great reminder for all of us, a great rebuke to all of us, a great rebuke to me that my words are important. I just think of 1 Corinthians 10.31 for the Christian. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. So whether then you eat or drink or the way you talk to people, do it all to the glory of God with his help. I need to say this additionally regarding our speech and the way we talk in the Christian community and in our homes and among one another and with the employees at work and maybe you know most of them aren't saved and so we can be sucked into this kind of undermining, sinful, wicked conversation that's easy to get sucked into or based on television or whatever the influence might be. There are excuses that Christians make up as to why they don't need to comply by all of this. Very specific stuff which God has mandated regarding our speech. Here are some excuses that I've heard over 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 time, or maybe some of the excuses I've used as a Christian. Some people say, well, you just need to understand it's my nationality. I'm Italian, or I'm Irish, or I'm German, or I'm Mexican. I mean, I've heard every single ethnicity used as an excuse. So it has nothing to do with your nationality or ethnicity, that you have a hot-headed temper and you're given and prone to outbursts of anger. You know what? It has nothing to do with your nationality. It's because you are a sinner is why you do it. It's not your nationality. That is not an excuse. Well, it's where I was born. I'm from New York. Or I'm from wherever. No, it has nothing to do with where you were born. It's because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. Well, you know, you've got to understand it's their hormones. Uh, no, it has nothing to do with your hormones. You know, Jay Adams is one of my favorite pastors and Bible counselors, and he's probably almost 80 years old, a man I highly respect, but he is one of the most respected Christian pastors alive on planet Earth today. And I've read several of his books on counseling, and just about every single one I have counseled, uh, he says this, he cautions Christians, don't let people use hormones or chemical imbalances as an excuse for sin. Now, hormones, they're real, and you have to contend with them, right? And certain hormones can make you irritable or unbalanced, and sometimes you know, medication or practical things can help you balance your physiological hormones. That's true. So he's not denying the reality of the problem of hormones, but he's saying don't let hormones be an excuse for sin, because God doesn't. He says it right here. Well, they're prone to outbursts of anger and rage. Well, it's their hormones. It's that time of the month. No, that has nothing to do with it. They need to control their mouth and their anger, because God said so. So this is very practical. Well, it's their upbringing. It's the way they were brought up. No, that's not an excuse. We're still accountable right here to the behavior of what comes out of our mouth. Jesus said we are accountable for every word that comes out of our mouth. It doesn't matter about your hormones or your ADD or your upbringing or your nationality or where you were born or just a misdiagnosis, which we want to do today in our society. And the secular world started this. 
the secular, humanistic, atheistic, anti-Christian, unbiblical world started misdiagnosing things, started misdiagnosing or re-diagnosing sins, like alcoholism. They don't want to call it a sin, which the Bible does. It is a disease, right? So it takes all morality away from it, all responsibility. Alcoholism, it is a sin according to the Bible. It's real. It's in the church. We need to deal with it. We need to ask for God's help. All that just to say we can't misdiagnose sin and give it medical, psychological terminology when God has explicitly told us what it is. Outbursts of anger, that is sinful. No, he's just bipolar or she's bipolar. No, you, you can be bipolar, I would imagine. But that's not an excuse for your sin. That's the point I'm making. I'm not dismissing these realities and struggles and hormones and whatever else, but I'm saying let's not dis, uh, give it a wrong label and dismiss what God says. We're accountable to God for all these things. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. Well, they're life trials. You don't understand. They're just going through hard times. Not too bad. These are still sinful. Well, it's their personality type. No, too bad. God has made it clear. That's why he concludes this whole thing by saying, put these things away. They are malice. They are sinful. They are wicked. They are evil. They grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Christian, and they shouldn't be named among you. That's what Paul's saying. Well, can I put these things away? Absolutely. God promises to help us put these things away. And again, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of the Christian. Is the practical way that we can grow with time as Christians if we're struggling. or we I don't know if you got nailed at any one of these points, but I know I did. I need God's help. I need the Holy Spirit to help me grow. I need Christians to hold me accountable. I need my family to be forgiving daddy. So we can grow. We can change. But we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, prayer, confession of sin to God, accountability in the church, and just probably first just admitting what God says is true. That's where it starts. Not denying it. Not justifying it. Not making excuses. Not re-diagnosing it, admitting at face value what God has said in His Word and having a desire to comply. And you know what? If you are, if you do that, you take the first step and you are sincere, God will answer that prayer. He will literally begin to change your character from the inside out and literally give you a sanctified personality. And over time, you will be known by somebody who speaks with grace as though their conversation is salted with a sweet permeating influence that blesses others. That's the desire, that is the goal, that is the ideal that God wants us to reach. So as a congregation, let's try to reach that together. And you know what? Let's ask God for his help. So if you could bow your head with me and close your eyes and we'll ask God to help us in this regard. Father, we do thank you for today, the opportunity to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to go through Ephesians and be challenged by you, to be confronted by you, Uh, to be rebuked and humiliated by you. I know that I am, Lord. But thank you for the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit for the Christian to comfort, to teach, to strengthen, to help us grow. And most of all, thank you for the forgiveness of sin that Jesus shed on behalf of sinners that we might have forgiveness of sin. And God, we need that. We need ongoing daily forgiveness of sin. And you're willing to give that to your children. So I just ask for forgiveness today for ways I've sinned with my mouth and others here who desire forgiveness as well. And we thank you that we have that in our relationship with Christ. And God, just go before us with the Holy Spirit so that we would be a good representative of you to every person we go to and everything we say. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.